0: You know, you would be a good-looking fella if you didn't frown so much. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long.
1: And I am Cole Rolaine. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers.
0: We are at episode 151, back to Cole's Choice. What are we talking about today?
1: We are talking about one of my all-time favorites. This is a film that I've been talking about on the show in some form or fashion since all the way back in episode 5 when I first recommended it. And that is Killer of Sheep, directed by Charles Burnett. And that was originally shot in 1972 and 73, submitted for his master's thesis at UCLA Film School in 1977, and finally getting a premiere in 1978. It stars Henry Gale Sanders, Casey Moore, Charles Bracey and Angela Burnett and it's set in the Watts section of Los Angeles and it's about a man who works in a slaughterhouse and the toll that that work takes on him exhibited primarily through a series of vignettes that revolve around his home life his family and his neighborhood like I said this is a big one for me Charles Burnett I put him right up there with another absolute favorite of mine John Cassavetes in terms of how crucial they are to the American indie landscape. Now to set the scene a little bit, let's talk for a second about the LA Rebellion. They were a loose network of young black filmmakers in the late 60s to the early 80s that were centered primarily around UCLA and its film school. Charles Burnett is probably the most prominent name to come out of that movement, but we'll have another one coming up with our next choice, Julie Dash. She's also from that.
0: Unfortunately, I'm just not familiar enough with all of the crew of the L.A. Rebellion and the two that you just mentioned. Those are the ones that I know.
1: It's also folks like Billy Woodbury. There are actually over 30 filmmakers total that are affiliated one way or another with it. But don't feel bad because I don't think the vast majority of households know these names either.
0: There's just a lot more to see.
1: But to borrow a phrase, the L.A. Rebellion was about seizing the means of production, essentially. The object was to establish a new black cinema, something that ran contrary to the product that Hollywood was putting out at the time. Now, they were operating free of expectations, essentially other than their own, because they knew well ahead of time that there was pretty much zero chance at commercial success on the scale that their studio contemporaries were achieving unless they wanted to make exploitation films.
0: I was just about to ask that because it seems like most of the opportunities for people of color were in that genre, unfortunately, around that time. Where do you kind of see that fitting in? Is it something that there's something for all of us to still love or should we turn away from that genre?
1: Well, I look at it in two ways. As a film fan, I have a curiosity and an appreciation of all kinds of things, all kinds of genres, But I think it stands in stark contrast to what the filmmakers of the LA rebellion were trying to do because it traffics so often in stereotypes.
0: And Charles Burnett specifically talks about telling real stories.
1: Yeah, there were obviously budget and access issues, but it's a necessity is the mother of invention kind of thing because it also allowed for a lot of other things. Time to work out your own aesthetic, for instance. Or focusing on the social and political because you weren't concerned with courting mainstream commercial success. Just the simple act of filmmakers of color telling their own stories about their own community was a political act. And then within those stories, they're actively trying to counter those negative stereotypes perpetuated by the mainstream. And sometimes those stereotypes weren't even that obvious. Burnett talks about contemporaries that likely meant well by romanticizing the working class and their struggles. But Killer of Sheep is a direct opposite response to that. He is trying to bring that image more in line with the reality of things.
0: Speaking of being inventive, too, I just like the aesthetic of, you know you're not going to get any permits anywhere to shoot, so just go crazy.
1: Yeah, he's shooting all over the neighborhood in commercial establishments, stores, public streets. And that's how, actually, I think he achieves one of the things that's most important to me. It taught me about this backdrop a lot. I think about Watts, that neighborhood in popular culture and prior to Killer of Sheep, the two most prominent examples that I can think of, both of which I love, are Wattstacks, which only gave you a little sense of the community tucked into a messy and beautiful festival document, basically. And then Sanford and Son, which was obviously engineered and exaggerated for comic effect.
0: And as a very small child watching Sanford and Son, I didn't really connect that to a neighborhood. It was just something that went over my head.
1: Yeah, exactly. So Killer of Sheep was the first time that I felt like I was getting a real look at Watts with nothing in between me and it. And it took me a long time to get that view, too. That came in 2008, shortly after Milestone released this restoration on DVD. And I know that there were a number of prominent films between 1973 and now that are set in Watts, but none of them felt so unadorned as this one.
0: I remember hearing about To Sleep With Anger long before I even knew of Killer of Sheep or even before I was able to see Killer of Sheep, which was through you. You showed it for one of our movie nights.
1: Yeah, this is one I want to share with people every single chance I get. I feel like this is one of the most important American films ever made. But should we get to the action of the film here?
0: Let's do it.
1: Okay, it begins with young Stan in flashback, and he's being reprimanded by his father. And this scene, I think, sets the tone for what we come to understand as his character and his circumstances. The tense family situations, having to grow up fast in this environment. But there was something that I wanted to ask you about here. I see in his reaction to being reprimanded a flash of measuring whether he can take his dad in that moment, kind of on the brink of manhood. I think this is a common watershed moment for a lot of young men, either stemming from something playful like wrestling or even something more serious like the slap that we see here. There comes a moment when you are a kid, a growing young man, where I think you assess your strength in relation to your father. Can I take the old man, basically, if I needed to, if I have to? Do you feel like girls have a same or at least a similar moment in their youth like that?
0: I can only go from my experience. And when I watched this, this was my second or third viewing at this point. I was struck first by the women singing because I have such a distinct impression from the previous viewings that this was a male-centered story. And what you're talking about seems appropriate to that. But now I hear these women singing, and it reframes it quite a bit for me. So then... If I'm thinking about if girls have a similar analog, because I certainly didn't notice that same look in his eyes. So I'm thinking maybe it's not something that we experience in the same way. Is it fair, would you say, to call it a rite of passage? Oh, definitely. Okay. So then I would say maybe something analogous to a transition like a menstrual cycle, but... Is what you're talking about specifically around violence and emotions and how you express those emotions, whether it be fear or anger or frustration as a young person?
1: I don't feel like it's rooted necessarily in violence, because like I say, some of these ideas spring from just playtime. I think it has to do more with power and perception of your own strength.
0: I guess the closest thing that I can think of is that menstrual cycle, when you are aware in your own body that something has shifted, very specifically. You're geared for a different purpose, certainly one that's imposed upon you that you didn't choose.
1: But still makes you want to fight just as much.
0: It sure does. It sure makes you want to fight the patriarchy. Certainly not in a logical way, but that's just what comes through. Do you remember having a moment like that where you thought, huh, can I take the old man?
1: Yeah, I'm sure it happened somewhere along the way. I don't have a very specific one I point to. I think I feel more like there were various points along the way that I kept reevaluating it. And finally, I realized today is that day.
0: I guess I still sort of want to posit that I think that there's some element of violence in there. If maybe you had told a story about your father behaving in some sort of violent way towards you, something with physical action, maybe it would be different. I don't know. I'm throwing that out there. Let's see what other people think too.
1: I don't associate it with that because my father simply never hit me. Right. So it doesn't occur to me as that. It was always playful stuff with us. It was more me using that as a kind of measuring stick, judging my own adulthood.
0: I think here that there is a violent undertone, at least not necessarily you know, punishment, not necessarily corporal punishment, but as in, this is what we do. So when we're starting here with young Stan, and then we're transitioning to see how childhood is in the neighborhood, do you feel like that you're seeing an urban childhood experience? And is that somehow different than a rural one or a suburban one?
1: It's definitely an urban experience, but I think there's a universality to some of it too. I'm coming at this from the country end of the spectrum. Dirt clod fights, we definitely did that. throwing stuff at trains, taking your friend's shoes as a joke. There're at least these superficial similarities. We just did all of that in a more rural setting, but this kind of roaming, whiling the day away it's all totally relatable. The dangers that we didn't realize or take stock of, you see these kids jumping rooftops, we just jumped between hay bales or out of tree houses. We didn't know to be afraid, even though someone always gets hurt when we're doing these things. <laughs> But what we didn't have in the country shows up here in a couple of ways. One, the ramifications of that scene where the two guys are ripping off the TV in one alley on one block, you have multiple generations as either participants or witnesses to this. So you feel the ripples coming off of this one instance for years in either direction. And then you multiply the effect on all involved by however many times they see something like this. For another, it was a much more isolated experience for us in the country. There was still the potential for trouble being born of idleness like this. It was just a slightly different kind of trouble, usually with less direct influence by other parties, for better or worse. It was typically the product of our imagination a lot of the time, rather than someone goading us to do something. Large groups of us didn't go around together, if for no other reason than just proximity to one another. My nearest neighbors were between a quarter of a mile to a mile away, so it wasn't just like we could walk down the block to our best friend's house. And one last difference comes to mind. In an urban setting, there's no privacy, relatively. You better be in the mood to hear music in the other part of the house, even if it's just your adorable little sister singing along to her favorite records, which is a scene in this that I just love dearly.
0: That could never not be adorable. Little kids, sort of getting the words, kind of. It's just wonderful. But basically, you have described my childhood. Mine was the suburban one. Best friend two doors down, best friend across the street, best friend five doors down. A roving band of us. Every single picture in all of our houses includes eight of us. My friend and her sister with her sister's little friend, who's the brother of blah, 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 on and on and on. It was always a roving band of us. That scene where they're practicing handstands against the wall. How many times did I do that? And how many times did somebody's mom or dad come and open the door and knock us over? So I very much relate to this, including like you're saying, no privacy. We were just in and out of everyone's houses all the time. I knew everybody's older brothers, girlfriends, business, who's dating who on and on. We didn't have the dirt fights. We didn't have that same topography, but it definitely felt like the same sort of landscape. And I think I really see Burnett in this too, especially with young Stan, because I think of Stan as being part of that second migration. I don't think of Stan as being born in LA, just like Burnett. I see him coming from the South, moving there just like at the end when we had that expression, the devil's beating his wife. Did you grow up with that one? Because I sure did. Yeah, we did. Before we move away from the scenes of childhood, though, I've got a question for you. Did it seem like a big deal to you, as it did to me, that we're actually in a film seeing black children being children? I feel like in this world, young kids in general, but especially children of color, there are moves to make them into adults with adult motivations well before their time, instead of acting their real ages.
1: Well, again, with Burnett, everything is so complex. So I feel like it's a little bit of a two-way street or double-edged sword. It's refreshing to see kids be kids. But it also just confirms my suspicion that the weight of family responsibility is crushing and it's madness to take it on. I don't ever want to have this.
0: Oh, I see. From the parent standpoint, you're saying. Exactly. (laughs) I thought you meant the kids were bearing. No. Which some of them probably are. They
1: actually do a little bit of that, yes, because I'm thinking about this idea that in these contemporary films you're talking about, or less sensitive films that you're talking about, there's an aspect of sexualizing these kids. In this case, it's other pressures that might have a general similar side effect, especially as it extends to the neighborhood. That thing I was saying about privacy, the experiences that you absorb as a kid, just going around your neighborhood, they are significantly altered when everything that happens is basically for public consumption. You grow up a lot faster by default when you're living on top of each other this way. And then you watch little things like the kids each having their own version of this grown up thing of finding little things to allay their fears or their dissatisfactions. It's a defense mechanism that you pick up at a very early age.
0: I guess, in part, that question comes from me exploring a lot of literature about education and early childhood education and how much we see young children of color being put in these positions where they're labeled as aggressive, all of these sorts of words that should apply to older children, not five-year-olds, for example. And here we get to see five-year-olds being five-year-olds. And I feel like if you're a person looking to see yourself reflected back on screen, this is a good way to go in terms of understanding the world as you see it and how you see yourself instead of what someone else is telling you you're supposed to be. So Burnett, again, is showing us these real stories across all generations.
1: Yeah, everything you mentioned just underlines for me how relatable this film is in general. What a humanist director that Charles Burnett is. For instance, just another example. I had a support network like you see in these circles of friends and neighbors, but mine was basically all uncles. My dad had four brothers and they all had a little bit of the outlaw in them, like some of these characters do.
0: Or a lot bit.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure there were definitely occasions where they were up to no good. And these schemes to make some cash or get a good deal Buying this engine for 15 bucks, for instance, this stuff always seemed to end up this way. Or at least it did in my family in the 70s.
0: Even though it doesn't have to be relatable for me, it really is for the same reason, except not in my family. But if we go back to that big sprawling neighborhood again, I could put names to all of these characters, that same analog. The guy, you know, who's always trying to make an extra buck and turn it into two and on and on. The guy who's always got that nag in the next race. The woman who's trash talking the other woman. It just goes on and on. There's so much here that I could recognize.
1: You make me think a lot about their intentions and their ability to plan ahead and implement these schemes. Best laid plans and all that. And then that true understanding that I still have from that time Fifteen dollars is no joke in these circumstances. It wasn't to us then.
0: It's not to me right now either.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So similar to these characters, I have these analogs too that were always working on something, always hustling, always trying to make something better of their situation, in some cases out of nothing. So I feel very familiar with these guys.
0: I wonder too, when we see Stan laying some linoleum, did you think about your dad?
1: Oh, without a doubt. The job that my dad worked in his days off from his regular job was setting tile and doing flooring. That's how we got to take any vacations in the summer. My dad and his brothers would get a job tiling a new sirloin stockade somewhere and the whole family would pack up and go to that place and spend the week for our summer vacation while they worked. I saw him in that position measuring a floor more times than I can count. But it's more than that too. My dad is the analog here in other ways for trying hard to be the good egg out of the bunch, the one that had some poetry in his soul, that had big ideas, but was also damn tired from working so hard all the time during that part of my life, laying tile and ruining his knees, coming home covered in filth from head to toe, from working on an oil rig for a little while. I see a lot of him in this.
0: I don't quite see as much of my dad in here. I think it's probably because... My view of Stan comes from not necessarily his own words, but what other people say to him, especially his wife. That was really the bulk of my viewing this time. I was really focused on her and her story within the story, because I remember my dad smiling all the time, and he's really talkative, and we did a lot of stuff together. He had those same kinds of jobs. It was always something to try to move us forward a little bit but he didn't feel quite as cut off as Stan does to me.
1: My dad's personality is probably in between. He talked and laughed and smiled a fair amount, but he was very precise with what he said. He was always very much against this, and it's still one of my very favorite phrases, talking just to hear your head rattle. Right. (laughs) But he does have a great sense of humor. For instance, Sanford and Son that I mentioned, he loved that show. I never heard him laugh as hard as he did at Sanford and Son.
0: I think maybe my dad's a little bit more on the Rattler side of (laughs) the talkativeness. But I remember, too, we have this picture and we don't know who this guy is. This guy randomly showed up in our yard at some point. He brought along a friend who ended up becoming my dad's best friend still to this day, 30 plus years later. But it's these three reprobate looking guys standing in front of a Volkswagen Beetle. And they look like they're having the time of their life with their unkempt beards and their tank tops and all that kind of stuff. But who was that guy? There are all these odd characters coming in and out.
1: Yeah, you come into our family circle like that and we're going to cast a suspicious eye on you for quite a while before you work your way in. It doesn't work that way with us.
0: Maybe he brought some crawdads from the river. I don't know. Maybe that's how he got in. We'll
1: still take the crawdads, (laughs) but we're still going to keep you at arm's distance for a little
0: while. Got it. We have lots of stories of characters mixing in like that and canoe trips with canoes being lost and practically deliverance level antics happening without the horrible violence.
1: But anyway, like I was saying, yeah, I see a lot of our 70s life, the first 10 years of my life in this for sure. And let's talk about this idea the importance of access and representation. People quite rightly want to tell their own stories. They want to see themselves and their lives represented on screen this way. Like I say, I think it's an incredibly relatable film. And yet, people still push back against the idea of representation for a number of reasons, especially when it doesn't conform to their idea of what the world is. That's why all kinds of cultures telling their own stories becomes so important. When that becomes widespread enough, then those people that are trying to derail you, they can't deny your reality, though they will still try. Because Burnett tells a story about someone who saw to sleep with anger, and this person was taken aback because they didn't know that black people had washing machines, they said to him. This I can relate to too, because I still get asked with no irony now and then when I tell people that I'm Comanche and I grew up in Oklahoma, if we lived in teepees and rode horses to school. This was 1990, when to sleep when anger was made, almost the 21st century when this person was asking this question, and I find it both completely unbelievable in one regard, and yet based on my own experiences, I do not doubt the veracity of Burnett's story at all.
0: And just to clarify, you didn't grow up in the 1870s, right? right? So where in the hell does that question come from?
1: Coastal elites. (laughs) I guess. But that episode that he relates, that makes me think of how there are two tracks that I'm keeping in mind while I watch this. On the one hand, what is universally relatable, which is a lot of it, and then what Burnett is telling us that is specific to the Black community. Because no matter how relatable it is in some ways, I will never fully know the feeling of having to struggle so long and so hard for so little progress in some arenas. I will never know this specific feeling of being at the mercy of forces beyond my control and entire systems put in place to keep it that way. I do relate to some of the same economic circumstances from that same time period. In the 70s, we were scraping by a lot of the time. There were a lot of dinners of beans and cornbread when I was a kid. We talked a little about this during our episode about the film, The Exiles. I am a member of the Comanche tribe. And when I was 10, we moved into our own home on tribal land. And that stretch of my life, I realize when I think back, that was the last time I was around that many other natives. Once I went away to college, awareness of that community didn't really exist anywhere else that I've been since then unless you're in very specific parts of the country, there aren't many of us around. And so when I think about American history, I think of the native experience and the black experience as being on sort of parallel paths in some ways, similar though, obviously not exactly the same. So I relate a little in that sense too. So all these things that I recognize as being similar to my situation, that's my way in. But then the larger part, once I get there, is being open to what Burnett is telling me about the rest of it.
0: Yes, I'm definitely with you, because everything in this country comes down to race. It's a completely made-up construct, but there it is. And you can say, well, no, it's all about class. It is, and race is above that. And that's why I wanted to take pains a bit earlier to say, this doesn't have to be relatable to me. This doesn't have to be made for me. I'm just so grateful that I get to see it. And like you said, it's then up to me to be open to it and to try to explore these themes and get a greater understanding to the extent that I can of these other experiences, especially when we're seeing a specific moment in time. Because I mentioned the second migration earlier, I think that has a huge influence on what we're seeing. It certainly did to Watts. You've also got the effects of World War II, how it transitioned that neighborhood into what it became. And now it's even completely different from that period.
1: You say that, and all of a sudden I am thunderstruck when I stop and realize this was half a century ago.
0: You are so right. Did you know it's now almost 70% Hispanic?
1: I didn't know that specific statistic, but it doesn't surprise me.
0: And I'm not putting any sort of judgment on that one way or the other. It's just things change. And here we get the opportunity to see what I think of as a big period of transition. We see that generation that I think started out in this neighborhood in the 40s, the older man. I think a lot of Walter Mosley here and his stories around that period. We've got the returning soldiers from Vietnam that we see as well and the effect that that has taken on their lives. We're about 10 years post Watts riots as well. So there are so many things that have to be a play on the psyche. And then within that transition period, I want to talk again about the female experience. Where is the woman during all of this? She's even further at the bottom of the barrel. She even has fewer opportunities than Stan does.
1: Tellingly in this, Casey Moore is just credited as Stan's wife. Just as one example, even with someone as forward thinking as Charles Burnett. Though I don't know if he's doing that on purpose to illustrate a point.
0: That's where I fall. I do think it's drawing our attention to the oppression that she's going through as opposed to being an afterthought. I really do think it is on purpose. Because she's at home all day. We see those telling moments where she's kind of primping to get ready for nothing, essentially. Like you said, that terrible burden of having children why she's excited when the other young woman comes by to tell the group that she's pregnant and she seems so happy for her. I just don't know where it's from because there's just nothing but cynicism from the rest of the women, and I think well-earned. So then it becomes what I see as sort of these moments of transcendence. The possibility of a trip to the track seems like a great thing when that's all that you have.
1: I think you're onto something there because thinking of this late 70s as a transition period, I think of it the same way I think you do. Maybe even more in terms of internal geography versus the external geography of the neighborhood. Mainly thinking of it for me, does this exist as quote-unquote a simpler time? One thing that I know for sure watching this is that now we manufacture things to take up all the available space in our lives. Space we didn't even know was there in 1978. It's hard to describe, but remembering how I felt then, you're not bored because you don't feel the lack of things that you don't yet know about. So I'm not inclined to go either way with it exactly as far as what it means in terms of a transitional space. I probably just follow Burnett's lead in his portrayal of things. I don't want to over-romanticize it any.
0: At this point, I tend to think of no time in the past as being simpler. It was just different motivations. It was just different things that you're reacting from.
1: I think different technology is what makes the biggest difference for me. We're talking about access. That's just a completely different type of access. I feel like the whole world has access to me 24 hours a day now, where it wouldn't have before.
0: It's true, but there's a significant part of the world, in fact, the majority that has no access at all still to this day even just in our state.
1: Well, when I think back to 1978, if I asked my dad in 1978, for instance, what filled up his time, I am sure that he would have related most heartily to this feeling of what is there to look forward to except this never-ending cycle of work.
0: Yeah, in answer to that question, there's nothing I can think of to look forward to when you phrase it like that, and I think that's the reality. And like I said, it just made me watch the wife even more. Where in her day is there anything that doesn't feel like drudgery? No connection, no outlet.
1: I think you answered that a little bit already. Those instances where she takes the time to, even if it's just a few minutes, spoil herself by dressing up, feeling better about her situation, employing the few tools that she might have to do that, even if it's only just for a few moments.
0: I completely disagree with your reading of that. I don't think she's spoiling herself. There's no self-care happening. I think it is all directed to try to get him to touch her, to try to get him to look at her. And it's the same for him. It's drudgery for him as well. And there's the potential for that trip. and It doesn't go anywhere. There's the potential for sex that doesn't go anywhere. In fact, the opposite, where it seems like you poignantly feel the absence of something all the time. And I don't know how Either of them would get any of those good feelings back. If they were ever there for Stan, maybe not.
1: So how do you think Casey Moore fares in terms of her performance versus a more seasoned actor like Henry Gale Sanders?
0: I think she's wonderful. I think she's a huge standout. And I didn't notice her as much in the first viewing. So I think there's something to watch. It did make me wonder, though. Do you feel like it hampers a film to have one actor like Henry Sanders, who's so clearly more talented than the non-professionals or the more inexperienced actors.
1: No, you know, and most of the people who have listened to this show for a while know, I love non-professionals. It's always one of my favorite things to see a cast like that. And I think it works just fine here. It's a smart move to put him in the central role because it's essential to the story that we get a good picture of the whole man. He tends to favor his little girl, the baby of the family. He obviously cares for his son, but with the age the kid is at and the influences that he is potentially falling under, that care manifests itself more as just another layer of worry, just another burden on the pile. He loves his wife clearly, even expressing just flashes of playfulness and that erotic longing, but it is impossible to sustain any of that because daily life has just ground him down. His 9 to 5 is an abattoir, and he is surrounded by and even inflicting literal death every second of his workday. So choosing Sanders to be the one to portray all this is obviously the right way to go. My initial reaction when I see this is that I wouldn't be able to do it. But then I realize I would if that was the only way that my family will eat. But it's easy to see how stultifying and dispiriting it would be. It's easy to understand how much that would wear you down. He is doing it, potentially, because of the short list of opportunities that is available to this character.
0: I think you're right on the money with Sanders. I can't imagine another person in that role, especially because, like you mentioned earlier, so much of it is not on the page, for example. It's not through dialogue. In fact, it's through the absence, the notable absence of dialogue that he's expressing himself.
1: Have you ever seen the creases in somebody's forehead express as much as this?
0: Oh, Maybe mine. (laughs) (laughs) And I do think it makes certain moments really stand out. There are a couple for me. The friend who's shooting dice who winks back at us. And that woman who is pregnant when he goes to get the motor. That caress on the arm. There are those small telling moments.
1: Yeah, I file those small telling moments under what gets you through the day the opposite of your work day. It's tomorrow and that inherent flicker of promise. But then watching this, I just realize that is a thin ray of hope to hang an entire life upon when the succession of all the days that have come before this for as far back as the eye can see have all failed to deliver on that promise of hope so far. This is maybe the most important lesson that I think that Burnett is trying to teach me that I take from this at least the overwhelming resilience of the Black community en masse in the face of this. How do you think these characters approach the concept of the future, either short-term or long-term? Hope comes in these short-term flashes, so I'm left wondering after I watch, is this an oasis or a mirage? Endurance is Stan's most remarkable quality.
0: And speaking again of influences, I'm trying to place stan in the whole spectrum of generations to me if he's in his 30s and the 70s he's likely a boomer and i think of those people as being measured against their father's generation again the world war ii soldiers the people founding that area
1: so when you say that it makes me think of that very first question i asked they are never going to be able to live up to their father's standards if they're measuring themselves against that all the time they're perpetually coming up short. Is that sort of what you mean?
0: In a way. And also, I think those people are long gone. We have just one of them. We have that older man in his shirt and tie maintaining his lawn. Can Stan see himself in that? I don't think so. And again, let's talk about Vietnam. Two tours in Vietnam for his character. There's got to be violence and death at home and abroad, that you see in your short-term and your long-term future. There's got to be PTSD layers in that, too. And like you said, and Burnett said it himself, what people are really struggling for is to endure, to survive, to become adults and maintain some sort of moral compass.
1: Well, not having to endure that ourselves is one of those things that means that adequately covering this film may just be an impossibility for us in some ways. I want to do everything I can to make sure that people see this movie, and there are definitely things in it that a lot of us have been through on one level or another, but obviously there are parts of it that we can't speak directly to because it's not our experience. Those parts of it, hopefully, we just listen closely to and make sure to take it to heart. But what we absorb from just observing the landscape, maybe that's a little bit different versus something a little more dynamic or confrontational. Compare it to another film that we've covered on the show, Do the Right Thing. Does it make a difference in how you process it when you're just seeing the cumulative effects of racism as opposed to directly observing the racial conflict?
0: So in Do the Right Thing, the tension, the heat, those are the things that you can palpably feel throughout the entire film. And you see the oppressor on screen in this film I think you said it earlier when we talk about those systems in place that many of us are not aware of. They're invisible systems. They're meant to be that way so that we don't try to chip away at them. So I think that we are still seeing both the racial conflict and the effects of racism. You just have to pay attention. And, you know, something that you said earlier really strikes me here, this idea of was it a simpler time if we don't have That in-your-face confrontation, something like this could take on the sheen of a more genteel time, and it never was. Every action is just as incendiary. These bungalows are straight-up post-World War II. They were supposed to be affordable. They were supposed to support industry and returning soldiers, and that view has totally changed. I think you can tell when something was designed to impose some sort of segregation, so when we look at Do the Right Thing, I feel like I am looking at the steps leading up to a riot. In this film, I look at the effects post-riot, this slowing down period, almost a death, I would say. It did make me think of a couple of other things, though, if I may. If we just look at Spike Lee's body of work in general, this reminds me so much of how both filmmakers capture childhood in a specific neighborhood in a really beautiful way.
1: Now that you mention it, Another similarity that I see between Burnett and Spike Lee, I think they're both brilliant in how they use music. What do you think of Charles Burnett's use of music in this?
0: So wonderful, going back to that very first moment of the women singing, which then ended up upending my expectations to a certain degree. It made me think in a different way than I had. I love the different bits like running with the TV, Longer sections of music with his job or the little girl listening to records. Paul Robeson when the kids were playing. I know Burnett intended to really use this as a history of African-American music. And I guess that's also one of the reasons why it was so hard to see for so long, because of obtaining those rights. By the way, did you know in January 2021, the Museum of African-American Music opened in Nashville?
1: I did not know that. Something to add to our next itinerary when we head east from here. I love the way he uses music. All of the influences that you talk about. It seems like he has an encyclopedic grasp of the great American songbook and all of its permutations. And Paul Robeson, for example, that really sticks out on the soundtrack. Do you think 1977 audiences were more in tune with that? I know I just realized a few minutes ago, it's been 50 years since then, so you're maybe... 15 years closer to it as opposed to 65 now. But do you think it still stirred something in the community to hear Paul Robeson singing those songs?
0: I feel like it's supposed to call forth again that vision of the generation before us. Is Stan thinking, this is the music of my
1: father? And the other thing it makes me think of, since you said this a minute ago too, about actually filming, I like this rogue element of just using whatever music you like. Even though it probably wasn't as defiant as all that, because he never really intended this to be released theatrically. But I still like this method of, I'm taking all of these pieces and putting it together into something that transcends just one of them.
0: And then just hoping later that Earth, Wind, and Fire are going to be cool with the use of their music in it.
1: If anybody would, you would hope it would be Earth, Wind, and Fire.
0: I do. I want them to be the coolest guys ever, because that's what they seem like.
1: And speaking of the coolest guys ever, some of Stan's friends come around to get him to do a job. A job that they imply possibly goes as far as murder, which I guess his day job is murder, if you look at it a certain way. But as they see it, they are just trying to help him out. You see a situation like this being treated comically in something like Raising Arizona. I think you're a bad influence in this household, that whole thing. But this is real, and this has serious ramifications if it goes sideways. So based on how crucial this is, Stan's wife, she comes out and she delivers a similar speech to Holly Hunter's, this whole, you use your brain, that's what you use. It makes me aware that you don't ever have to sit and wonder if I'm going to make it home safe or what trouble I might be getting into the way this character does, or even in the mild way that my mother had to sometimes with my dad.
0: It's true, though I would say with that specific instance, I looked at it and thought, there's no way he would do that. I feel like I knew enough about the character to sense that this is not his world.
1: It may just come down to how hungry his family is, because I think it's firmly established. You mentioned Vietnam. Surely he killed over there if he was there for two tours.
0: Very true. And if Noir has taught us anything, we could be less than a paycheck away from facing those very real possibilities.
1: But I think you read his character the right way. It's certainly the way I read it. Because we go through a stretch here that gives us a good idea of his constant struggle just to maintain and how he always keeps on the right side of the line. You watch him debating the definition of being poor with his friends and justifying how that doesn't apply to him. He gives things to the Salvation Army. That ain't me, he says. If he can afford to be charitable, even on the smallest level then he perceives himself as being above a situation that's that dire. But then that's soon followed by this encounter with the woman that runs the corner store. Stan lets her flirt if it gets that check cashed, which might not happen otherwise. So in these circumstances, he finds himself at the mercy of people in large and small ways. So he must feel in those moments disenfranchised, not in control of his own life. So we've quickly arrived in just a few moments at the opposite of pride. These moments tease this sudden heavy emotional swing out of these little but significant interactions, just like you were talking about a little bit ago. Those
0: moments when you do have to decide, am I going to use my brain to realize that's more important than my pride right now, and then try to get it back again? How many of those situations can you face?
1: But... I don't want to make it seem like it's impossibly grim here. Humor is crucial to what Burnett does, too, I think. It's a whole picture, a true picture. We get the delivery of this line later. You're about as tasteless as a carrot. It is brilliant. That is
0: a line for all times.
1: In the humor, it's never over the top, but it works to leaven the more downbeat moments. It's gentle and situational, and the setbacks are easier to take and process when you look at them this way. Dehumor is another one of those elements of hope. You can gird your loins against what is probably inevitable failure, if you play the odds, by adopting this attitude that everything is potentially absurd and comical. Even that weekend outing to the racetrack that you mentioned. A flat tire, riding back on the rims. Again, we come back to best laid plans and all that. If you look at it this way, It helps take your mind off of the situation.
0: Because I think we have one example that Burnett shows us that is the opposite of that, where that other path would go. He sees that character come out of his apartment wearing still his military uniform, but open with his undershirt and he's drinking straight from the bottle. And that seems like a character that's sitting in there all day doing that, thinking about the past, no hope for the future.
1: And yet it still makes it somewhat funnier because you have every balcony and staircase lined with little kids watching this farce happen.
0: It's true. It's true. It's not a terribly dure downbeat film all the time that just leads to suicide.
1: But while we're talking downbeat... Yes. One of these musical selections, hands down, is the most devastating. This Dinah Washington rendition of This Bitter Earth, that slow dance sequence is killer. You can see 10 million things that they are each thinking about in this minute and a half. It is so painful the way that she is touching him, running her hands over him, trying to express all of her care and desire, practically trying to pry him open to get at what's inside, grasping at him, trying to find anything in him to cling to. And then it's equally painful the way that Stan can't find anything in himself to return any of that. And then there's just that beautiful grace note that I love, hearing the sounds of the actual record player while this is going on. It's one of the most beautiful scenes and painful scenes I think I've ever laid eyes on.
0: Yeah, shouldn't I have picked this for my New Year's choice, (laughs) the way my years usually go? And speaking of depression, is there a reading of this film that is just about dealing with a partner with depression kind of like part of this continuum of films like Two Days, One Night, which I covered.
1: I definitely think so, but it feels like apples and oranges with the specific example of Two Days, One Night because of the time frame. You asked earlier about the 70s being a transitional time. Maybe this is one of the most significant ways as illustrated by these two films. I think of the 70s as that time when we were just beginning to shift how we looked at mental health In our country, 40 years later, there are all these systems in place to help Marion Cotillard in two days, one night. But in the 70s, none of that was there in time to be of any benefit to Stan. He does not have the time or room in his life to consider depression as a factor in anything. He just has to get up and keep going. It's just not convenient for him to not deal with the bodies in the slaughterhouse on the assembly line. And there is a huge metaphor for you. You've got those being slaughtered, and also those just lined up waiting to be slaughtered. Those are the only two choices in that environment. So the most overwhelming feeling of this that is so palpable, that feeling that there has to be more than this.
0: And there's nothing in place for mom. There's a scene that I love where she's in the other room, and she's watching the little girl massage her dad's shoulders and his face. While the little girl looks right at her, there just seems to be so much jealousy and frustration, and the little girl seems to be aware of what she's doing to some degree.
1: But as it's presented here, does it feel like an accurate representation to you of how it would be to be either one of these characters?
0: It does. Just another view of real life and real situations.
1: Which I think is another of the reasons that people might push back against this realism, that discomfort that you feel from that They just don't want to relive what they consider mundane, daily experience, especially when it's so hurtful. I know some people don't go to the movies for this reason, to take in these feelings like I do, but this is the sort of thing that I will always gravitate to, I feel like. Because one of the most important functions of cinema to me is as a window into another time, another place, another culture that I would otherwise have no access to. And so these are incredible movies for people who want to learn about other people's lives and want the delivery to be honest. If you want to learn about and empathize with and better understand your fellow man, watch Charles Burnett's entire catalog. They are perfect human-sized documents of black life in America. And while we're on that upbeat note, we arrive at the end that you've already referenced a little bit. We have this juxtaposition of expectant mother and Stan's work in the slaughterhouse and this reprise of this bitter earth over all of it, which can't do anything except make me wonder about the prospect of bringing another child into the world. That lyric, too soon you're old, that weighs a ton. That is everything in a nutshell right there. It's the cumulative and relentless march of time. There's never an explosive moment exactly, but there doesn't have to be one. This movie just gently moves forward, assuming greater and greater gravity with every scene. Obviously, this movie makes me feel a lot of stuff. I think it does you too.
0: 100% and more each time as I hope I've gotten across.
1: Well, I want to conclude here with one of my favorite filmmaker quotes of all time. When asked about creative control, Charles Burnett said this, it's not a matter of control. It's a matter of responsibility. It's what you do with the media, what you do with the story, what you want to say. So you can obviously, me being me, see why I love this guy so much. What about your recommendation? Where do we go next from this?
0: I picked Lift from 2001, directed and written by demaine Davis, along with Kari Streeter. And it stars Carrie Washington, Eugene Byrd, and Lonette McKee. It's about an ambitious young woman who works in an upscale clothing store and on the side has a very prolific shoplifting hustle, basically a cottage industry out of her apartment. So is she going to be able to maintain this lifestyle or is there a reckoning coming? So this was also a film I waited a long time to catch up with. I remember when it came out very distinctly. I have often felt like Carrie Washington has been in these roles where it's basically just smoke and mirrors affectation. But here, she gets a chance to shine. She is wonderful. I like the exploration of her family's dynamic. There's the selfish and distant mother, the loving grandmother, the disapproving aunt. And we see how Niecy tries to navigate this world and this intense side business she's created around theft. So if we then look again as what is the black woman doing? What is the black woman's experience? Here is a view of an experience. And I think everybody should check it out. How about you?
1: Well, I'm going with a film that I made a brief reference to earlier, and that is To Sleep With Anger from 1990. And this is Burnett's other masterpiece in my estimation. It stars Danny Glover, Paul Butler, Mary Alice, Carl Lumley, who I love, Von Anna McGee, Richard Brooks, and Cheryl Lee Ralph.
0: That is a cast for the ages.
1: It's about a charismatic old acquaintance that drifts into town and ends up causing trouble for the mild-mannered family that he moves in with. And it's a career-best performance from Danny Glover for me, I have to say, first and foremost. But... What you say there is very important too, a cast for the ages, because this ensemble, how strong they are, it's a testament to them that he doesn't overshadow them in the least. And you asked earlier, way back at the beginning of this episode, about rural versus urban versus suburban. This touches directly on some of these differences and the class ramifications of moving from one to the other and back again. It's really just a fine examination of a corrosive, corrupting influence and how little it actually takes sometimes to turn lives upside down or to get people to topple over if they're already leaning that way a little bit. They just need a little push. And it still maintains that relatability that you find in all of Burnett's films, even with the supernatural hint of brimstone lingering in the air. Highly recommended.
0: So once again, that's two great recommendations, Lift and To Sleep With Anger.
1: And that brings us to the end of episode 151. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at MagicLanternPodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter, at Lantern underscore cast, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time, particularly Josh Hornbeck at the Criterion Channel Surfing Podcast and Laura Cannon over at the Fatal Films Podcast. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. You can find our show on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcast, you can find us there. If you'd like to leave a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com.
0: And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast.